Get on an experiment. Get on an experiment. <clears throat> Get on an experiment. Okay, I think we're ready. Okay, are you guys ready to continue with this Get on an experiment that's going to turn into a real experiment? All right. I don't know if I'm going to do this every time, but I think it would behoove the listener to have a little bit of a summary of what has happened in the first part uh, before we start the second. Uh, basically, sailors need to know their longitude when they're at sea or else bad things will happen. They'll crash into a shore or something. Uh, this was solved in the mid 1700s um, with the invention of the chronometer, but the chronometer has some inherent flaws in it um they mentioned a couple uh er, the author mentions a couple in the story i think one was like if it does get knocked around and goes bad a chronometer by the way is just like a, um it's like a big box that basically keeps time accurately uh they like old grandfather clocks had been around for a while and those were able to keep time fairly accurately, but you can't take one of those on a ship. So a chronometer, I don't know, it uses, you know, a different method. I think it specifically does not use gravity, which a grandfather clock does to keep time. So that's how it was useful to sailors. But basically the story, this story starts out, um, some college buddies kind of talking about how they could improve upon it. They mentioned if they were able to build a, a hundred mile high tower, um, that would be one way to solve it. Not going to happen. They mentioned if the earth had uh, planetary rings like Saturn's, except rotated 90 degrees so that it went pole to pole, that would solve it because you could see that um, on the on the ocean and you calculate your longitude. Not going to happen as well. Uh, so they settled on, they decided a brick, uh, a moon would do the trick, a second moon, which orbits pole to pole. And they decided on it being, it should be 200 feet in diameter. It should orbit at 4,000 miles away and it would be launched uh, by giant water-driven flywheels. Uh, and it would be constructed of brick and that would be to endure the atmospheric heat, uh, upon launching. And they speculated it would cost 60,000 bucks uh, just for the brick alone. And little college punk kids didn't have that money. So they just kind of dropped it. And then uh, 17 years later, Mr. George Orkut, one of those college buddies, uh, swings by um, the narrator and asks him if he remembers the, talking about the brick moon. And he says, of course I do. And then he explains how while during these 17 years he made a ton of money in the railroad industry kind of went on and on about that um so now the boys are back together they hold a town meeting and they basically calculate that it would cost uh not just 60,000 for the brick but uh, in total $214,729 for the moon and to build the two flywheels to launch it and then they do some smooth talking in this town hall meeting and they get some investors and uh, along with Orkut's, you know, contributions um, that he made in the railroad business. And basically they end up with $162,000, which is shy of the $214,729 they need. Um, like that's like 75000 bucks short. 
And even though it's not enough, they, they get ready to um, begin the endeavor anyway. So that's where we left off. And uh, in this episode, well, you're going to hear, I think we're going to start building it. Two, how we built it. The orange was squeezed dry. And how little any of us knew. Skillful George Orcutt, thoughtful Ben Brannan, loyal Halliburton, ingenious Q, or poor, painstaking I. How little we knew, or any of us, where was another orange. Or how we could mix malic acid, and tartaric acid, and citric acid, and auric acid, and sugar, and water, so as to imitate orange juice, and fill up the bank account enough to draw in the conditioned subscriptions and so begin to build the moon. How often, as I lay awake at night, have I added up the different subscriptions in some new order, as if that would help the matter, and how steadily they have come out $162,000, or even less, when I must needs, in my sleepiness, forget somebody's name. So Halliburton put into the railroad stocks all the money he collected, and the rest of us ground on at our mills, or flew up on our wings towards heaven. Thus Orca built more tunnels, Q prepared for more commencements, Halliburton calculated more policies, Ben Brannan created more civilization, and I, as I could, healed the hurt of my people of Nagwadavik for the months that were left to me of my stay in that thriving town. None of us had the wit to see how the problem was to be wrought out further. No, The best things come to us when we have faithfully and well made all the preparation and done our best. But they come in some way that is none of ours. So was it now that to build the brick moon, it was necessary that I should be turned out of Nagwadovic ignominiously, and that Jeff Davis and some seven or eight other bad men should create the Great Rebellion. Hear how it happened. Dennis Shea, my double, otherwise indeed called by my name and legally so, undid me, as my friend supposed, one evening at a public meeting called by poor Isaacs in Nagwadovic. Of that transaction, I have no occasion here to tell the story. But of that transaction, one consequence is that the brick moon now moves in ether. I stop writing to rest my eye upon it through a little telescope of Alvin Clark's here, which is always trained near it. It is moving on as placidly as ever. It came about thus. The morning after poor Dennis, whom I have long since forgiven, made his extraordinary speeches without any authority from me in the town hall at Nagwadovic, I thought, and my wife agreed with me, that we had better leave town with the children. Ochmuti, our dear friend, thought so too. We left in the seven o'clock accommodation for Skowhagen, and so came to township number nine in the third range, and there for years we resided. That whole range of townships was set off under a provision, admirable in its character, that the first settled minister in each town should receive 100 acres of land as the minister's grant, and the first settled schoolmaster, 80. To number nine, therefore, I came. I constituted a little Sandemanian church. Ochmuti and Delafield came up and installed me. And with these hands, I built the cabin in which, with Polly and the little ones, I have since spent many happy nights and days. This is not the place for me to publish a map, which I have by me, of number nine, nor an account of its many advantages for settlers. 
Should I ever print my papers called stay-at-home Robinsons? It will be easy with them to explain its topography and geography. Suffice it now to say that with Alice and Bertha and Polly, I took tramps up and down through the lumberman's roads, and soon knew the general features of the lay of the land. Nor was it long, of course, before we came out one day upon the curious landslides, which have more than once averted the flow of the little Karatuk River, where it has washed the rocks away so far as to let down one section more of the overlying yielding yellow clay. Think how my eyes flashed and my wife's as, struggling through a wilderness of moose wood, we came out one afternoon on this front of yellow clay. Yellow clay, of course, when properly treated by fire, is brick. Here we were surrounded by forests, only waiting to be burned. Yonder was clay, only waiting to be baked. Polly looked at me, and I looked at her, and with one voice we cried out, The moon! For here was this shouting river at our feet, whose power had been running to waste since the day when the Laurentian hills first heaved themselves above the hot Atlantic. And that day, I am informed by Mr. Agassiz, was the first day in the history of this solid world. Here was water power enough for 40 flywheels, were it necessary to send heavenward 20 moons. Here was solid timber enough for a hundred dams, yet only one was necessary to give motion to the flywheels. Here was retirement, freedom from criticism, and escape from the journalists, who would not embarrass us by telling of every cracked brick which had to be rejected from the structure. We had lived in number nine now for six weeks, and not an own correspondent of them all had yet told what Reverend Mr. Ingram had for dinner. Of course, I wrote to George Orcutt at once of our great discovery, and he came up at once to examine the situation. On the whole, it pleased him. He could not take the site I proposed for the dam, because this very clay there made the channel treacherous, and there was danger that the stream would work out a new career. But lower down, we found a stony gorge, with which George was satisfied. He traced out a line for a railway by which, of their own weight, the brick cars could run to the centrings. He showed us where, with some excavations, the flywheels could be placed exactly above the great mill. Wheels, that no power might be wasted, and explained to us how, when the gigantic structure was finished, the brick moon would gently roll down its ways upon the rapid wheels to be launched instant into the sky. Shall I ever forget that happy October day of anticipation? We spent many of those October days in tentative surveys. Alice and Bertha were our chain men, intelligent and obedient. I drove for George his stakes, or I cut away his brush, or I raised and lowered the shield at which he sighted, and at noon Polly appeared with her baskets, and we would dine all fresco, on a pretty point which, not many months after, was wholly covered by the eastern end of the dam. When the field work was finished, we retired to the cabin for days, and calculated and drew, and drew and calculated. Estimates of feeding Irishmen, estimates of hay for mules. George was sure he could work mules better than oxen. Estimates for cement, estimates for the preliminary sawmills, estimates for rail for the little brick load, for wheels, for spikes, and for cutting ties. What did we not estimate for? On a basis almost wholly new, you will observe. For here, the brick would cost us less than our old conceptions. Our water power cost us almost nothing, but our stores and our wages would cost us much more. 
These estimates are now to me very curious, a monument indeed to dear George's memory, that in the result they proved so accurate. I would gladly print them here at length, with some illustrative cuts, but that I know the impatience of the public and its indifference to detail. If we are ever able to print a proper memorial of George, that, perhaps, will be the fitter place for them. Suffice it to say that with the subtractions thus made from the original estimates, even with the additions forced upon us by working in a wilderness, George was satisfied that the money charge of $197,327 would build and start the moon. As soon as we had determined the site, we marked off 80 acres, which contained all the essential localities up and down the Little Caratook River. I engaged George for the first schoolmaster in number nine, and he took these 80 acres for the schoolmaster's reservation. Alice and Bertha went to school to him the next day, taking lessons in civil engineering, and I wrote the Bingham trustees to notify them that I had engaged a teacher and that he had selected his land. Of course, we remembered still that we were near $40,000 short of the new estimates, and also that much of our money would not be paid us until on condition that $250,000 were raised. But George said that his own subscription was wholly unhampered. With that, we would go to work on the preliminary work of the dam and on the flies. Then, if the flies would hold together, and they should hold if mortise and iron could hold them, they might be at work summers and winters days and nights, storing up power for us. This would encourage the subscribers. It would encourage us. And all this preliminary work would be out of the way when we were really ready to begin work upon the moon. Brannon, Halliburton, and Q readily agreed to this when they were consulted. They were the other trustees under an instrument which we had got St. Ledger to draw up. George gave up, as soon as he might, his other appointments and taught me, meanwhile, where and how I was to rig a little sawmill to cut some necessary lumber. I engaged a gang of men to cut the timber for the dam and to have it ready, and, with the next spring, we were well at work on the dam and on the flies. These needed, of course, the most solid foundation. The least irregularity of their movement might send the moon awry. Ah, me! Would I not gladly tell the history of every bar of iron which was bent into the tires of those flies, and of every log which was mortised into place in the dam, nay, of every curling mass of foam which played in the eddies beneath when the dam was finished and the wastewater ran so smoothly over? Alas, that one drop should be wasted of water that might move a world, although a small one. I almost dare say that I remember each and all of these, with such hope and happiness did I lend myself, as I could, each day to the great enterprise. Lending to dear George, who was here and there and everywhere, and was this and that and everybody. Lending to him, I say, such poor help as I could lend, in whatever way. We waked, in the two cabins in those happy days, just before the sun came up, when the birds were in their loudest clamor of the morning joy. Wrapped each in a blanket, George and I stepped out from our doors, each trying to call the other, and often meeting on the grass between. We ran to the river and plunged in. Oh, how cold it was. Laughed and screamed like boys, rubbed ourselves aglow, and ran home to build Polly's fire beneath the open chimney which stood beside my cabin. The bread had risen in the night, 
The water soon boiled above the logs. The children came laughing out upon the grass, barefoot and fearless of the dew. Then Polly appeared with her gridiron and bear steak, or with her griddle and eggs, and, a fewer minutes than this page has cost me, the breakfast was ready for Alice to carry, dish by dish, to the white-clad table on the piazza. Not Raphael and Adam more enjoyed their watermelons, fox grapes, and late blueberries, and, in the long croon of the breakfast, we revenged ourselves for the haste with which it had been prepared. When we were well at table, a horn from the cabins below sounded the reveille for the drowsier workmen. Soon above the larches rose the blue of their smokes, and when we were at last nodding to the children to say that they might leave the table, and Polly was folding her napkin as to say she wished we were gone, we would see tall Asfan Langdon, then foreman of the carpenters, sauntering up the valley with a roll of paper, or an ads, or a shingle with some calculations on it, with something on which he wanted Mr. Orchid's directions for the day. An hour of nothings set the carnal machinery of the day a-going. We fed the horses, the cows, the pigs, and the hens. We collected the eggs and cleaned the hen houses and the barns. We brought in wood enough for the day's fire, and water enough for the day's cooking and cleanliness. These heads describe what I and the children did. Polly's life during that hour was more mysterious. That great first hour of the day is devoted with women to the deepest arcana of the Eleusinian mysteries of the divine science of housekeeping. She who can meet the requisitions of that hour wisely and bravely conquers in the day's battle. But what she does in it, let no man try to say. It can be named, but not described, in the comprehensive formula, just stepping around. That hour, well given to chores and to digestion. The children went to Mr. Orchid's open-air school, and I to my rustic study, a separate cabin, with a rough square table in it, and some book boxes equally rude. No man entered it excepting George and me. Here, for two hours, I worked undisturbed. How happy the world had it neither postman nor doorbell. Worked upon my traces of Sandemanianism in the 6th and 7th centuries, and then was ready to render such services to the cause and to George as the day might demand. Thus I rode to Lincoln or to Foxcroft to order supplies. I took my gun and lay in wait on chairback for a bear. I transferred to the hewn lumber the angles or bevels from the careful drawings. As best I could, I filled an apostle's part and became all things to all these men around me. Happy those days. And thus the dam was built. In such Arcadian simplicity was reared the mighty wheel. Thus grew on each side the towers which were to support the flies. And thus, to our delight not unmixed with wonder, at last we saw those mighty flies begin to turn. Not in one day, nor in ten, but in a year or two of my happy life, full of the joy of joys, the joy of eventful living. Yet, for all this, $162,000 was not 197000 Far less was it 250000 And, but for Jeff Davis and his crew, the brick moon would not have been born. But at last, Jeff Davis was ready. My preparations being completed, wrote General Beauregard, I opened fire on Fort Sumter. Little did he know it, but in that explosion, 
the brick moon also was lifted into the sky. Little did we know it when, four weeks after, George came up from the settlements, all excited with the news. The wheels had been turning now for four days, faster, of course, and faster. George had gone down for money to pay off the men, and he brought us up the news that the rebellion had begun. The last of this happy life, he said. The last, alas, of our dear moon. How little he knew, and we. But he paid off the men, and they packed their traps and disappeared, and, before two months were over, were in the lines before the enemy. George packed up, bade us sadly goodbye, and before a week had offered his service to Governor Fenton in Albany. For us, it took rather longer, but we were soon packed. Polly took the children to her sister's, and I went on to the department to offer my service there. No sign of life left in number nine but the two gigantic flywheels, moving faster and faster by day and by night, and accumulating power till it was needed. If only they would hold together till the moment came. So we all ground through the first slow year of the war. George in his place, I in mine, Brannon in his. We lifted as we could. But how heavy the weight seemed! It was in the second year, when the second large loan was placed, that Halliburton wrote to me. I got the letter, I think, at Hilton Head, that he had sold out every penny of our railroad stocks at the high prices which railroad stocks then bore, and had invested the whole 59000 in the new governments. I could not call a board meeting, said Halliburton, for I am here only on leave of absence, and the rest are all away. But the case is clear enough. If the government goes up, the moon will never go up. And, for one, I do not look beyond the veil. So he wrote to us all, and of course, we all approved. So it was that Jeff Davis also served. Deep must that man go into the pit who does not serve, though unconscious. For thus it was that in the fourth year of the war, when gold was at 290, Halliburton was receiving on his $59,000 17% interest in currency. Thus was it that, before the war was over, he had piled up, compounding his interest, more than 50% addition to his capital. Thus was it that as soon as peace came, all his stocks were at a handsome percentage. Thus was it that before I returned from South America, he reported to all the subscribers that the full quarter million was secured. Thus was it that when I returned after that long cruise of mine in the Florida, I found Polly and the children again at number nine, George there also, directing a working party of nearly 80 bricklayers and hodmen, the lower centerings well-nigh filled to their diameter, and the brick moon to the eye seeming almost half-completed. Here it is that I regret most of all that I cannot print the working drawings with this paper. If you will cut open the seed vessel of Spergularia rubra or any other carpal that has a free central placenta and observe how the circular seeds cling around the circular center, you will have some idea of the arrangement of a transverse horizontal section of the completed brick moon. Lay three croquet balls on the piazza and call one or more above the seven and you have the core of the moon completely. If you want a more poetical illustration, it was what Mr. Wordsworth calls a mass. Of conglobated bubbles undissolved.
Any section through any diameter looked like an immense rose window of six circles grouped around a seventh. In truth, each of these sections would reveal the existence of seven chambers in the moon, each a sphere itself, whose arches gave solidity to the whole. While yet, of the whole moon, the greater part was air. In all, there were thirteen of these moonlets, if I am to so call them. Though, no one section, of course, would reveal so many. Sustained on each side by their groined arches, the surface of the whole moon was built over them and under them, simply two domes connected at the bases. The chambers themselves were made lighter by leaving large, round windows or open circles in the parts of their vaults farthest from their points of contact, so that each of them looked not unlike the outer sphere of a Japanese ivory nest of concentric balls. You see, the object was to make a moon which, when left to its own gravity, should be fitly supported or braced within. Dear George was sure that, by this constant repetition of arches, we should, with the least weight, unite the greatest strength. I believe it still, and experience has proved that there is strength enough. When I went up to number nine on my return from South America, I found the lower centering up and half full of the working bees, who were really Celtic laborers, all busy in bringing up the lower half dome of the shell. This lower centering was of wood, in form exactly like a Roman amphitheater, if the seats of it be circular. On this, the lower or inverted brick dome was laid. The whole fabric was on one of the terraces, which were heaved up in some old geologic cataclysm, when some lake gave away, and the Karatuk River was born. The level was higher than that of the top of the flywheels, which, with an awful velocity now, were circling in their wild career in the ravine below. Three of the lowest moonlets, as I have called them, separate croquet balls, if you take my other illusion, had been completed. Their centerings had been taken to pieces and drawn out through the holes, and were now set up again with the other new centerings for the second story of cells. I was received with wonder and delight. I had telegraphed my arrival, but the despatches had never been forwarded from Skowhagen. Of course, we all had a deal to tell, and, for me, there was no end to inquiries which I had to make in turn. I was never tired of exploring the various spheres and the nameless spaces between them. I was never tired of talking with the laborers. All of us, indeed, became skillful bricklayers. And on a pleasant afternoon, you might see Alice and Bertha and George and me all laying brick together, Polly sitting in the shade of some wall which had been built high enough, and reading to us from Jean Ingelow or Monte Cristo or Jane Austen, while little Clara brought to us our mortar. Happily and lightly went by that summer. Halliburton and his wife made us a visit. Ben Brannan brought up his wife and children. Mrs. Halliburton herself put in the keystone to the central chamber, which had always been named G on the plans, and at her suggestion, it was named Grace now, because her mother's name was Hannah. Before winter, we had passed the diameter of I, J, and K, the three uppermost cells of all, and the surrounding shell was closing in upon them. On the whole, the funds had held out amazingly well. The wages had been rather higher than we meant, but the men had no chance at liquor or dissipation, 
and had worked faster than we expected. And with our new brick machines, we made brick inconceivably fast, while their quality was so good that dear George said there was never so little waste. We celebrated Thanksgiving of that year together, my family and his family. We had paid off all the laborers, and there were left of that busy village, only Asaph Langdon and his family, Levi Jordan and Levi Ross, Horace Leonard and Seth Whitman with theirs. Theirs, I say, but Ross had no family. He was a nice young fellow who was there as a Halliburton's representative to take care of the accounts and the payroll. Jordan was the head of the brick kilns, Leonard of the carpenters, and Whitman of the commissariat. And a good commissary Whitman was. We celebrated Thanksgiving together. Ah, me, what a cheerful, pleasant time we had. How happy the children were together. Polly and I and our bairns were to go to Boston the next day. I was to spend the winter in one final effort to get $25,000 more if I could, with which we might paint the moon, or put on some ground felspathic granite dust, in a sort of paste, which, in its hot flight through the air, might fuse into a white enamel. All of us who saw the moon were so delighted with its success that we felt sure the friends would not pause about this trifle. The rest of them were to stay there to watch the winter and to be ready to begin work the moment the snow had gone. Thanksgiving afternoon, how well I remember it, that good fellow Whitman came and asked Polly and me to visit his family in their new quarters. They had moved for their winter into cells B and E, so lofty, spacious, and warm, and so much drier than their log cabins. Miss Whitman, I remember, was very cheerful and jolly made my children eat another piece of pie, and stuffed their pockets with raisins. And then with great ceremony and fun, we christianed room B by the name of Bertha, and E, Ellen, which was Mrs. Whitman's name. And the next day we bade them all goodbye, little thinking what we said, and with endless promises of what we would send and bring them in the spring. Here are the scraps of letters from Orchid, dear fellow, which tell what more there is left to tell. December 10th. After you left, we were a little blue and hung round loose for a day or two. Sunday, we missed you especially, but Asaph made a good substitute and Mrs. Leonard led the singing. The next day, we moved the Leonards into L and M, which we christened Leonard and Mary. Mary is for your wife. They are pretty dark, but very dry. Leonard has swung hammocks, as Whitman did. Asaph came to me Tuesday and said he thought they had better turn to and put a shed over the unfinished circle, and so take occasion of warm days for dry work there. This we have done, and the preoccupation is good for us. December 25th. I have had no chance to write for a fortnight. The truth is, that the weather has been so open that I let Asaph go down to number 7 and to the Wilders, and engage five and twenty of the best of my men, who we knew were hanging round there. We have all been at work most of the time since, with very good success. H is now wholly covered in, and the centering is out. The men have named it Halliburton. I is well advanced. J is as you left it. The work has been good for us all, morally. February 11th. 
We got your mail unexpectedly by some lumbermen on their way to the ninth range. One of them has cut himself and takes this down. You will be amazed to hear that I and K are both done. We have had splendid weather and we have worked half the time. We had a great jollification when K was closed in. Called it Kilpatrick for Seth's old general. I wish you could just run up and see us. You must be quick if you want to put in any of the last licks. March 12th. Dear Fred, I have had but an instant. By all means, make your preparations to be here by the end of the month or early in the next month. The weather has been faultless, you know. Asaf got in a dozen more men, and we have brought up the surface farther than you could dream. The ways are well forward, and I cannot see why, if the freshet hold off a little, we should not launch her by the 10th or 12th. I do not think it worthwhile to wait for paint or an animal. Telegraph Brennan that he must be here. You will be amused by our quarters. We, who were the last outsiders, move into A and D tomorrow for a few weeks. It is much warmer there. Ever yours, G.O. I telegraphed Brannon, and in reply he came with his wife and his children to Boston. I told him that he could not possibly get up there, as the roads then were, but Ben said he would go to Skowhagen and take his chance there. He would, of course, communicate with me as soon as he got there. Accordingly, I got a note from him at Skowhagen, saying he had hired a sleigh to go over to number nine, and in four days more, I got this letter. March 27th. Dear Fred, I am most glad I came, and I beg you to bring your wife as soon as possible. The river is very full. The wheels, to which Leonard has added two auxiliaries, are moving as if they could not hold out long. The ways are all but ready, and we think we must not wait. Start with all hands as soon as you can. I had no difficulty in coming over from Skowhagen. We did it in two days. This note I sent at once to Halliburton, and we got all the children ready for a winter journey, as the spectacle of the launch of the moon was one to be remembered their life long. But it was clearly impossible to attempt, at that season, to get the subscribers together. Just as we started, this dispatch from Skowhagen was brought me, the last word I got from them. Stop for nothing. There is a jam below us in the stream, and we fear backwater. Orchid. Of course, we could not go faster than we could. We missed no connection. At Skowhagen, Halliburton and I took a cutter, leaving the ladies and the children to follow at once in larger sleighs. We drove all night, changed horses at Prospect, and kept on all the next day. At number seven, we had to wait overnight. We started early in the morning and came down the Spoonwood Hill at four in the afternoon, in full sight of our little village. It was quiet as the grave. Not a smoke, not a man, not an ad's blow, nor the tick of a trowel. Only the gigantic flywheels were whirling as I saw them last. There was the lower Colosseum-like centering, somewhat as I first saw it. But where was the brick dome of the moon? Good heavens! Has it fallen on them all? I cried. Halliburton lashed the beast till he fairly ran down that steep hill. We turned a little point and came out in front of the centering. There was no moon there! An empty amphitheater, with not a brick nor a splinter within. We were speechless. We left the cutter. We ran up the stairways to the terrace, 
We ran by the familiar paths into the centering. We came out upon the ways which we had never seen before. These told the story too well. The ground and crushed surface of the timbers, scorched by the rapidity with which the moon had slid down, told that they had done the duty for which they were built. It was too clear that in some wild rush of the waters, the ground had yielded a trifle. We could not find that the foundations had sunk more than six inches. But that was enough. In that fatal six inches, decline of the centering, the moon had been launched upon the ways just as George has intended that it should be when he was ready. But it had slid, not rolled down upon these angry flywheels, and in an instant, with all our friends, it had been hurled into the sky. They have gone up, said Halliburton. She has gone up, said I, both in one breath, and with a common instinct, we looked up into the blue. But of course, she was not there. Not a shred of letter or any other tidings could we find in any of the shanties. It was indeed six weeks since George and Fanny and their children had moved into Annie and Diamond, two unoccupied cells of the moon. So much more comfortable had the cells proved than the cabins for winter life. Returning to number seven, we found there were many laborers who were astonished at what we told them. They had been paid off on the 30th and told to come up again on the 15th of April to see the launch. One of them, a man named Rob Shea, told me that George kept his cousin Peter to help him move back into the house the beginning of the next week. And that was the last I knew of any of them for more than a year. At first I expected, each hour, to hear that they had fallen somewhere. But time passed by, and of such a fall, where man knows the world's surface, there was no tale. I answered, as best I could, the letters of their friends, by saying I did not know where they were, and had not heard from them. My real thought was, that if this fatal moon did indeed pass our atmosphere, all in it must have been burned to death in the transit. But this I whispered to no one, save to Polly and Annie and Halliburton. In this terrible doubt I remained, till I noticed one day in the astronomical record, the memorandum, which you perhaps remember, of the observation by Dr. Zeta of a new asteroid with an enormous movement in declination. Wow. Did anyone see that coming? Because I didn't. Um, that got crazy uh, toward the end. I, I did not expect that. You know, it, it, it's, um, I, it's almost like I should have expected it. That's, you know, science fiction this early on was just kind of crazy. But uh, I don't know. I just thought this was going to be a um, kind of a purely scientific science fiction. But um, nope. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll see what happens to him. <laughs> anyway, okay, so basically they have the money. They start building the moon. Um, Civil War breaks out. They have to stop. But by the end of the Civil War, they have more money uh, through, you know, whatever, stock market or investments or something. Um, so they build it up and all of a sudden... <laughs> Uh, what was the word? She has gone up. Okay. First off, I didn't realize this until recording this episode. The narrator isn't actually Edward E. Hale, 
who is the author. The narrator is called Fred, and he's also referred to as Mr. Mr. Ingham. So Fred Ing- Ingham is apparently uh, the main character. Now, th- there was one thing I was confused about. It's very coy how he says it. Uh, why does Mr. Ingham need to leave uh, what town was it? Nokwadovic? I don't remember. He has to leave the town that he was in because he got ousted or something like that. Uh, I-, I wasn't sure uh, why this was the case, but after kind of looking into it a little bit more, um, he was a, what is it called? He was a Sandamanian. And I had never heard of Sandamanian before, but and I still don't really know a lot about them. Apparently, also, they're called uh, Glassites. Basically, it's just, you know, another religion, probably broke off of some other religion. And I think maybe they were persecuted a little bit. So I think he, uh, I think his double, as he calls him, I don't know what that means. Uh, I don't know if that's a secretary or something or what, but his, his double um, calls him out about it. I guess he finds out. So he had to leave, I guess. But anyway, he sees the glasses half full and uh, basically says the brick moon wouldn't have happened had this not occurred and uh, also had not Jeff Davis uh, started a rebellion. Jeff Davis is was the first and only president of the Confederate States during the United States Civil War. And... I just want to read this line. He says, so it was now that to build the brick moon, it was necessary that I should be turned out of Nguadovic. It was Nguadovic. Ignominiously. Did I say that right? That's a tough word. And that Jeff Davis and some seven or eight other bad men should create the great rebellion. Hear how it happened. So anyway, um, you know, he sees the glasses half full. Uh, These bad things led to the creation of the brick moon. And... After that, he mentions another um, person from history that I had not heard of, but whose handiwork I have actually beheld with my own eyes, and that is Alvin Clark. Um, Alvin Clark was a telescope maker back in the day around this time, and he made a lot of um, refractor lenses. Those are glass lenses as opposed to um, mirrors. I mean, I guess, is a mirror a lens? No, it's not. Anyway, he made actually the biggest refractor telescope lens ever, which was a 40, actually this one's still around, a 40-inch refractor lens, and that is in the Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin. But he also made the... Lick Observatory's 36-inch refractor, which is the third largest telescope, uh, refractor telescope ever built. Refractor telescopes, there's like a physical limit. Uh, I mean, you could make larger refractor lenses than 40 inches, but it starts becoming um, super impractical. I, I think I've heard that the actual glass starts to like flex if it's bigger than... than um, 40 inches or you know it just becomes problematic after that that um size and also if you think about it uh refractor telescopes 
the their objective lens, the big lens, is at the far end of the tube, whereas uh, reflector telescopes, mirror telescopes, have the big heavy part, the mirror, at the base. That's actually, it turns out, is a lot easier to manage. And so basically all telescopes nowadays are reflector telescopes made of, um, you know, uh, with mirrors rather than refractor telescopes as they built them around this time. Um, so the, the one that this Alvin Clark that's mentioned in here, the one that he made uh, that is in Lick Observatory, which is on top of Mount Hamilton in um, the San Francisco Bay Area, is a 36-inch telescope, and it and that one I have actually seen. It is enormous. If you ever get the chance to go see this thing, and the thing is, is it's not open. The observatory is not open all the time. You got to go when they have like an open night, or when there's like a transit. I've actually been up there a couple times. I've I saw the transit of Venus uh, up on the mountain. However, I didn't actually see it through this telescope. Uh, they were showing the um like uh how do you say it the shadow through the telescope because basically uh basically you couldn't put your eye up to it but <laughs> you wouldn't want to okay for the transit of venus i mean that's the full power of the sun but um basically there's a bunch of other people up there with telescopes with uh, solar filters on as well but i also went up there just during an open night and i got to see a globular cluster, which is just a big cluster of stars through this 36-inch refractor that Alvin Clark ground himself. And it was probably the most amazing, well, I'll say this, it was the most magical experience I have ever had in my life. There's just something about putting your eye to this enormous hulk of metal and just knowing that... (laughs) Like this, the the light that's coming from this globular cluster, I don't know how many millions of miles away, is going through this enormous lens on the end of this telescope and traveling all the way down this tube and just producing this beautiful image in your eye. And it it really was beautiful. Um, It just had this quality to it that you just don't get with you know, something digital. I don't know. It was just amazing uh, having my eye attached to this enormous piece of machinery. Not only is the tube extremely long, but there's just these huge gears, um, you know, and and it's all mechanical uh, because when it was built, right? Um, And I don't know when it was built, but it was back in the day. I think it was late 1800s. Anyway, um, just a really, really amazing experience. I, you know, if you're if you're ever in the area, uh, you should really check it out. Now about the moon, they mention kind of the structure, how it was built, and I find this very interesting. So basically, they need they need it to be big, obviously, so that you can see it in the sky, but they also need it to be light to be able to get it up into orbit. So their idea. Edward Hale's idea is to basically take 13 smaller moons, moonlets, uh, they're hollow as well, but imagine 13 croquet balls, three on the bottom, 
seven in the middle, and then three on top. And that essentially makes, you know, a sphere-like object. And then around those hollow spheres, moonlets, you put two halves, two half domes. And now you have a brick moon, which is structurally secure. You know, it'd actually be interesting to know if this actually is like a structurally um, tough object. But um, that was his solution for making a light moon, but a strong moon. And, and then, you know, I guess uh, I, I think the idea was that maybe the, the housing for all these workers were, was kind of far away, maybe. So they just kind of took up to living inside these little moonlets. Uh, they started naming them. Um, you know, letters and uh, different people lived in the different moons. Uh, apparently, you know, it was in the winter at this time. It started getting cold. So they just kind of lived in there. And uh, well, as it turns out, <laughs> they were in there when it, I don't know, I guess, you know, I guess the water overflowed from this river and pushed the moon down the rail and the flywheels did the rest. So we have no idea where they are, no idea if they're dead, alive. It's been a year now, a whole year has passed, and uh, no sightings of the moon, no letters or emails from space, <laughs> and um, we're just going to have to see what happens. I really did not see that coming. Um, pretty cool, though. I, I, I enjoy it, you know, add some kind of fun to this otherwise very kind of scientific uh story i love the science parts actually but um now it's getting fun so uh just like before um i'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode i'd love to hear your thoughts about you know do you like the format that i'm doing are summaries good uh you know uh, what would you like to hear more of uh, if you have questions, I'd love to answer them and I can bring them up in the next podcast. And uh, if a lot of people ask them and yeah, just in general, I'd like to hear you uh, tweet me at wet Josh, W-E-T-J-O-S-H. That's pretty much the only social media I do. So hit me up there and uh, we'll see you next time.